Welcome. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast, the show that cuts through the fog of war and updates you about the ongoing conflict in Ukraine. With your host, Linnea Hubbard. Don't forget to like, comment and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Google Podcasts. We're with Sarah Ashton Cirillo. Sarah is a former journalist and is now a combat medic with the Ukrainian Armed Forces, originally from the United States. Sarah, thank you so much for joining us today. It's a pleasure to be here, being able to reach out to the different communities that are interested in Ukraine's fight for liberty and this war against Russian tyranny. It's been something that I've been looking forward to over the past days during my time in the United States to be able to sit down and and speak to you and your guests in the studio today. Sarah, you've been very transparent on social media about your literal and metaphorical journey in Ukraine. What drew you there in the first place? I had written a book, which was not a very good book, on the refugee crisis focused on the Syrian, Iraqi, and Afghanistani refugees that were going from Eastern Turkey and Syria into Europe in 2015. As the war was ramping up, or the thunder of war was ramping up, Along the Russian border with Ukraine, I was keeping an eye on what was happening with the displaced peoples and how they were flooding out of the nation. And ultimately, once war broke out, once the full-scale invasion happened, then I flew over to cover the refugee crisis. However, it became something much different. After only a half a day in Poland, I came into Ukraine. I went ahead and applied for my credentials through the armed forces of Ukraine was credentialed as a journalist and went to the front lines in Kharkiv Oblast, which is abutting the Russian border. And I spent more than seven months there covering the war as a journalist from Kharkiv. And then for the last two months, I've been combat medic for the Ukrainian Armed Forces with the Crimean Tatar Battalion. And the journey, as you mentioned, uh, transparent on social media, we live in a world where information is everything. And transparency is imperative if you're going to win over the trust of your audience. And I realized with the Russian lies that take place, the best way to refute it and the best way to get the message out was to go ahead and be as in your face as possible with my reporting, specifically because I was on the front lines. No journalist, no foreigner has spent more time in the Russian border zone area than I have since the full-scale invasion broke out. Sarah, one thing to clarify for our audience, particularly if they hear Kharkiv and they've been listening to our podcast or reader situation reports, uh, some people may be going, well, wait a minute, Kharkiv was cleared out in September. You were there when the Russians were knocking on the door of the very edges of the city of Kharkiv. When I arrived, it was March 9th in Kharkiv Oblast, March 10th in the city. They had just been pushed out to about a kilometer and a half outside what's known as the Ring Road. They were basically still in the city. They remained in that location for more than two and a half months until the first Kharkiv counteroffensive. Regarding the second counteroffensive, the one which cleared out more than 85% of Kharkiv Oblast, I was at the front lines of that battle, but not in a medic role. At that point, I was working with the Ministry of Defense in a civilian capacity. And so I was there during the liberation of Volchansk. Of, in, in the days after, I was there in Balaklia, Zoom, uh, Kupiansk. I was one of the first people uh, 
probably the first non AFU person to go inside of the Russian headquarters for Kharkiv Oblast in Kupiansk. You've been very transparent also in the fact that you're transgender. And one of the things that I had read on your Twitter is how you feel more accepted in Ukraine as somebody in the LGBTQIA community than you did in the United States. And there's this perception, I think, in the world that Ukraine is not accepting of this. Let's talk about that a little bit. You understand what it is to be trans or LGBTQI in the United States. It's all about culture wars, fairly or unfairly, on both sides. When I talk about acceptance in Ukraine, it's not saying that they're rolling out special programs for me or they're applauding that I'm transgender. It's just the opposite. I don't even think the word tolerance comes up. It's this idea that it's a war for liberty, a war for liberation. And so therefore, they accept me first as Sarah Ashton, the human being, then it was Sarah Ashton, the journalist, or Sarah Ashton, the soldier, ultimately Sarah Ashton, the female, Sarah Ashton, the American, and somewhere down the line, it's Sarah Ashton who's transgender. It's just not something that comes up because in this moment, especially with the rapid progress that Ukraine is making in the areas of human rights, of civil rights, of just the umbrella of personal freedoms, that being transgender in Ukraine, even during a war, even during martial law, is just something that is not an issue. When I was credentialed, my driver's license, my gender marker, it had all been changed in the courts in Nevada, my name. But my passport still had my previous name. My passport still had my uh, birth gender. Because of this, I wasn't even sure they were going to allow me in the nation to report. We went through very, when I say we, myself and the state security agents that were uh, going ahead and and, uh, looking into why I was coming into the country through a lot of back and forth, which included maybe what some people thought was invasive behavior towards me, but what I understood during a time of war was necessary. Beyond that, the only issue that they ever made of me being transgender was on my credentials, on my media credentials, big, bold type, Sarah Ashton Cirillo. And then in the smallest font, one or two font uh, type typeset, and it had my previous name. And that was so if I was traveling, I could show my credentials or I could show my driver's license, but somebody insisted on a passport. The armed forces of Ukraine wanted me protected to be able to show a clear marker and, and connection between that passport and who I was uh, today. And that's an issue that was taken care of in July when in the middle of the war, I managed to change my passport with the help of the State Department to match up my driver's license. And so everything's in congruence now. But even during that time, being stopped, having people look at my passports, never an issue, just a couple of times a question. And then when it comes to the people I serve with, a few of them will ask, why did you change? What made you change? Because I'm the very first transgender person that many of these people will have ever spoken to. However, very much not the only gay person or or lesbian person. So more and more often, and having written for LGBTQ Nation, I looked into this from a reporting standpoint, as well as my own personal experiences. Life for the LGBTQI plus community is much better than it was five years ago, eight years ago. And almost to a person, the belief is that this progress hasn't just been entrenched, 
but is going to get better and better. I wrote 30 plus bylines from Ukraine for LGBTQ Nation. Probably three of or four of them had to do with my story and the other 26 or, or, or so, 27, were regarding local uh, LGBTQ issues, human rights issues. One of the areas I looked into was this rumor that the L, uh, trans people were not allowed to leave, as an example. And one of the local uh, groups, uh, one of the local LGBTQ groups uh, located out of Nipro, broke down what was happening. If your documents hadn't been changed, you weren't able to leave because you had people just trying to escape by claiming they were trans. They were, people were pretending to be trans to try to get out. If your documents were changed and you didn't have any surgeries, that was fine. You were entitled to go with your psychiatrist letter, your psychologist letter. So there was some gatekeeping there. But even during the war, the different ministries worked with these LGBTQ groups to expedite paperwork for people who were trans identifying or, or transgender to be able to leave. Yes, it was terrible. You're in the middle of war. You're stuck at the border for 72 hours. And then you're told you can't go. Well, you're looking at a, a pause or a stop of a week or two weeks in order to get your paperwork in order. I believe this one organization assisted with more than 200 trans people and their family members leaving during wartime. Do I get privilege from being a more traditionally femme transgender person? Absolutely. Because it's a misogynistic society. It's a traditionally misogynistic society but not one that is inherently bigoted towards any particular groups. I think I would have a bigger issue if I was an active feminist, even as, as opposed to just allowing my work to speak for itself. There's some pushback where I've been with the guys before and I was embedded with security services for almost two months and we would be there. And we're all living in the same place. I'm the only female with them. I would eat with them and then I would clean up the dishes. That's the type of traditional outlook that Ukraine still has. But when it comes to acceptance, it's across the board. The people I've interviewed, the folks in the LGBTQ uh, army community, the people with different pride organizations. There was even a case during uh, the liberation of Kharkiv where Kharkiv pride put on a week's worth of events and were allowed to do it during martial law. I didn't go to one of those events because I was working with the liberation, but ultimately it had nothing to do with foreigners being there. They were allowed to put it on. Uh, another group, Ukraine Pride, went ahead and worked with the Azov Battalion to raise, I think, over $10,000 while they were in Mariupol in the Azovstal. So ultimately, again, I'm privileged because I'm operating in a traditionally female role where I'm surrounded by a bunch of very male, traditionally male, uh, you, how would I put it? Folks, manly men. <laughs> yes, very manly men who are see me around and like, you can wash the dishes, Sarah. One of the reasons I signed up to fight is because I know they would kill me. I've reported on it, not because it's Sarah Ashton, Cirilla, they're going to kill that too, but they'll kill gays and lesbians. They will kill transgender people. There was a hunt list for people in Mariupol who were LGBTQ. I reported on castration issues before that castration video came out. This is who they are. They are tyrants that do not believe the, under Putin's regime, Putin and his fellow war criminals 
do not believe that the LGBT community have the same rights as anyone else in Russia, and they will kill anyone or torture them who doesn't fit the mold of what they imagine Russians to be. Sarah, this is an interesting point that you've brought up, because at one point in time, there was a higher bounty on your head than Igor Gurkin Strelkov when Strelkov announced that he was going to be fighting in Ukraine. Um, You have a $50,000 price tag on your head, as I understand. What is it? Do you even think about this or is this just like, bring it on, bro? It's, it's bring it on, bro. I don't know the number. People throw around different numbers. I do know that I've been twice publicly attacked at the highest levels of government. Uh, in April, Maria Zakharova attacked me based on, she's the Minister of Foreign Affairs spokesperson, uh, attacked me in writing through the embassy and the Ministry of Foreign Affairs uh, regarding my gender, my sexuality, as well as uh, being a journalist. And then in November, I was put on Russian state television in a more than two minute montage where they broke down who I was and, and, and my claims that we were going to try to take back Crimea, et cetera. What they do on some of the other channels, meaning social media, quite often they'll put my coordinates up of where they think I am. There's this active attempt to uh, seek me out. My commanders are aware of it. The Ministry of Defense is aware of it. In some ways, I feel safer in Ukraine than I did traveling out of Ukraine due to knowing the security situation when it comes to Russian saboteurs. I'm nothing special on the front lines. I'm nothing special in the field. They want to kill every one of us. But I think that I epitomize everything that they have been worried about in their own minds. And as such, they would really like to get me. They never will, but they would really like to get me. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. Our team of journalists, researchers, and analysts is funded by readers, listeners, and viewers just like you. To support independent journalism, please consider becoming a patron. You can find us on patreon.com at Malcontent News. Sarah, I'm going to ask this question. I just want to qualify, too, that this is at a very high level because I know as somebody who is a representative of the armed forces of Ukraine, you, we can't talk about specifics of what's going on. You arrived in early March. One of the things that we have pointed out in our situation reports in the podcasts is when Russia was pushed out of Chernihiv, Kiev, Kharkiv, this was Ukraine. This was not NATO dollars and NATO weapons. Ukraine did this because there wasn't a whole lot of flood of these materials that had arrived yet. How have you seen the military evolve from those dark days of March 9th? And we can draw the line up until, right, you swore your your oath to the Ukrainian military. Sure. When I first got there, everyone was dry. Everyone had rifles. It was as though what you'd have imagined a 1775 militia would have been in the United States during the revolution except transported into 2022 technology. You had guys standing at checkpoints in sneakers. You had guys with shotguns. Everyone was prepared to defend their homelands. Folks were making Molotov cocktails, nettings. I got to Ukraine on March 4th, and this was the nation in the West, and it continued to be the nation, you know, what I saw as I moved East in in the next five, six days. Now, more people have plates, 
more people have plate carriers, more people have real uniforms, but yet we're still doing more with less than anyone could perceive or comprehend. Just speaking from an ancillary military standpoint, we have IFACs, but we don't have extra IFACs, IFACs, individual first aid kits. So if somebody gets injured or their IFAC gets lost, or even their helmet is left in a trench, there's no logistics chain that's getting you your helmet or your next IFAC. You are doing without it. We have no medevac equipment. We have one, in my particular case, one ambulance, front wheel drive for a battalion of 500 plus people. This is how we're winning. We're winning despite the fact that we do not have the equipment that any NATO army has, but we're also doing it with help of some amazing equipment from NATO military members, such as the United States, United Kingdom, Poland, uh, Canada, and, and, and the rest of our allies. And so we're in this middle point, but it was truly a rebel army that came together with 100,000 professional soldiers, because obviously there had been a war going on here for nine years, hundreds of thousands of, of additional patriots that got together and pushed the Russians out. Clearly, the international community was able to look at it and say, these guys are for real and started to back us much more quickly than had been in, in the early part of the war. I know for me personally, my moment of where this isn't going to go as the world thinks is when uh, President Zelensky said, I don't need a ride. I need ammunition. That was the moment where I went, I think Russia has picked the wrong fight here. No one expected this president, very successful producer. They make a joke. That he's a comedian. No, he was a sharp, sharp entertainment mogul who happened to have a creative bend to him as well. But he ran on a wholly different platform than more. This is not a man who wanted war. This is, this is a man who won with the idea that they were going to answer the Crimea question and answer the Donbass questions through diplomacy. This was also a guy who was challenged by President Trump to bend or, or break his ethics and his morals, and, and he refused to do so. So that should have maybe been the first indicator. But at the same point, no one really thought that a man who ran on a peace plan was going to stand up to the mighty Russian army. And instead, President Zelensky has inspired all of us, every single one of us. I know many people who will tell me, I didn't vote for the man, but we're, we'll literally follow him into battle now. And we saw Secretary Clinton mention this the other day in comparing it to the Afghanistan retreat of their politicians, where the president was one of the first to leave and left with the money in a private helicopter and going into um, one of his host countries, where Zelensky was willing to ride it out. And that said everything. What is it like living in an environment where air raid sirens are, are going off? And what's it like? I don't know how else to ask this question. I mean, what is... You mentioned being neurodivergent. It's not something I speak about often, but it's not a secret. I'm on the spectrum. If I wasn't on the spectrum, I, I don't know if I could have done it. I don't know how a whole nation does it, but especially living in Kharkiv, because it's an abnormal situation. It's abnormal. I was on the phone with uh, BBC. I was doing an interview. Air raids came and then an explosion happened. Multiple occasions, I was live when rockets were hitting 100 to 150 meters from me. You know, you might have seen some of the clips. Yes. And so ultimately, 
I think it's a combination where for the first seven weeks, I felt a false protection because I was with security services. And when I say false, not that they weren't watching out for me, but I didn't understand that the rocket doesn't care if you are going to be protected from being shot by Russian troops, the rocket's just going to come and wipe you out. By May, I was so invested in my work that I pushed through. By September, it had become the new normal. And that's what many of us are dealing with now is there's no going back. There's no going back to, to how it was. If I would have known nine and a half months ago what I know now, including respect for my work, including the media, including being able to be in the midst of this historic fight for liberty, I don't think I would have said, I'm going to do this. I would expose myself to, to this all the time and to the death. But once it happened, you meet the moment. You never want to lose the understanding that this is not right or normal or healthy. I don't want another Ukrainian or Russian to die. If you told me tomorrow, all of the Russians would be out of the country, and we would get all of our kidnapped Ukrainians back, and we'd have our 1991 borders, I don't need vengeance. I don't need any more blood. We are fighting this war in order to stop the war. That's what it comes down to. And I am staying in Ukraine and fighting for Ukraine because there's no going back to how it was on February 23rd, or in my case, on March 4th. You just can't go back to that. But yet you don't want to lose perspective and understand that we're fighting this war to make sure no other country has to go through what we're going through. A number that gets thrown around a lot in certain social media circles is we've given, when I say we, the United States, $100 billion to Ukraine. How much are we going to give? And with that said, one of our mottos is the truth matters. And if we look at direct military aid, we are recording this on December 13th. So when this airs, this number will have probably gone up. Um, But in direct military aid since 2014, The United States has provided about $21 billion uh, to Ukraine. What would you say to our audience who may be going, well, what are we doing with that $21 billion? It's the best spend of U.S. taxpayer money in foreign affairs since World War II. And why do I say that? Russia has been a perpetual enemy to the United States since before World War I, based on the geopolitical concerns. They were our allies in a very loose sense in the battle against Nazi fascism, but even then they were up to their own uh, self-interest. They were not working with the global community. They were definitely working for the self-interest of of the Soviet leadership. And so ultimately, I tell the American public, taxpayers, I understand that you want to know where the money is and how it's accounted for. And I've personally been on Capitol Hill telling your representatives, telling the policymakers, telling the elected officials, audit us, and you will find that Ukraine has been the best steward of U.S. taxpayer dollars and has provided the best return on investment because we're the ones out there fighting. We're the ones managing to vanquish this Russian tyrant and and Putin's war criminals. And all we're asking for is a little bit more time and some more weapons so we can finish the job. 
but keep on asking the questions. Keep on holding your elected officials accountable and keep on holding us in Ukraine accountable. There's uh, the number that I saw before this interview, there's 82,000 Ukrainian refugees under the official visa program that the United States set up. There's other people that have come from Ukraine on other visas and other programs. What would you what would you tell that community about the situation that's going on? And certainly one thing that has to be top of mind for that community. When can we come home? Number one, just because they are outside the borders of Ukraine doesn't make them any less responsible for this victory over the Russian war criminals and Vladimir Putin. I've said the same to the diaspora communities. You are part of this victory. Number two, although you're not within the country, it doesn't make you less Ukrainian and it doesn't make you less of a fighter for liberty and freedom of Ukraine. When you come home, come home to a society, come home to a state where you can slide right back into the fabric of everyday life. Right now with the power situations, Right now, with the water situations, if they feel more comfortable in the United States, stay here. Well, I'm talking to you from the U.S. Stay in the U.S. Because your home is going to be there for you. But the United States is welcoming you with open arms. So take advantage of that and help in other ways, whatever you can do. But just protect yourself right now while being part of this movement towards victory. I want them to know that they're world is still standing, the world they left behind. The buildings may have been destroyed, but the world still exists there. Sarah, one of the things that we wrestle with, we get asked all the time. Uh, We also get requests. Hey, can you promote this charity? Can you promote this fundraiser? And we're very reluctant to do this as an organization because we don't know where the money's exactly going to. And sometimes there are people that come across as being very honest and sincere And then when you get to the finish line, you get fooled. There was a very high profile case of this that happened uh, on Twitter among a bunch of people who were very smart, looked into it and got tricked. Sarah, if there was an organization that we wanted to tell our audience that wants to support the Ukrainian effort, where should their dollars be going? If you're looking for an international NGO or an international group, World Central Kitchen, hands down, World Central Kitchen is the number one. NGO for uh, international giving. I've seen them at the front lines. They, somehow they're there before soldiers sometimes. It's, I cannot say enough about World Central Kitchen. On a local level, if you want to go with a grassroots organization, uh, Ukraine Aid Ops. You know, Ukraine Aid Ops, uh, they work in the humanitarian field, but they also work in the military field. They get the equipment to where it needs to go. Those are the two. And Ukraine Aid Ops, Underneath them works with a couple of other groups, you know, partner groups that that I trust very much. But I would say World Central Kitchen, Ukraine Aid Ops, you're not going to go wrong. There's not going to be fraud. There's not going to be waste. There's not going to be this concern of are the items really getting there? And that's what's so important to me. Uh, There was a couple of battles I had um, back in the summer with different aid organizations, alleged aid organizations, alleged alleged people who were, you know, running some charities. If it was up to me, there should be background checks on every single person coming in to claim that they're doing any sort of a charity role, any sort of NGO role. If journalists have to go through it, they should too. And if they get caught doing supply runs without it, uh, without being signed off on, they should be detained. 
because there's too much malfeasance and there's too many shenanigans going on uh, within the grassroots non-Ukrainian NGO structure. We've been talking with Sarah Ashton Cirillo. Sarah, thank you so much for your time. Um, And you're extremely busy right now on your tour of the United States. Deeply appreciate you spending this time with us. This was a pleasure to come on the show. When I get to speak directly to grassroots freelancer journalists and, and others on local levels of journalism, it's so important because on a macro scale, people understand there's a war going on, but it's up to journalists like yourself, Renee and Kayla, to be able to explain to local populations around the United States why this war matters, why this fight for liberty and independence matters. And so I'm so grateful that you all found the time to want to speak with me today. So thank you very much. You've been listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. To help keep us independent, please consider providing financial support by becoming a patron. Want on-demand news in your hand? Download the Google News app and make Malcontent News one of your favorites to receive breaking news updates. Thank you for listening.